Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 14th, 2013, and this is episode 1150 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, not monster trucks, but calls. Your phone calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, the numbers themselves, 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465. Now, if you, if you call in, you think you're going to, hi, this is Jack, uh, what is your question call or something like that, not going to happen, pre-recorded podcast, I occasionally get that question, pre-recorded podcast, that means these calls are from a week, They're, some of these calls are from yesterday, and then they go back to about a week and a half ago, so that's about where we're at with you know going back through calls, so about 30% of calls in general get on the air, here's the way to uh, make it more likely, your call will get on the air, call from a quiet place. Don't call from the back of a motorcycle or running a chainsaw. Uh, next up, call with a place with some bars on your cell phone if you're using your cell phone because if you don't have good signal, since there's no one listening, no one's there to tell you, hey, I can't really hear what you're saying. Uh, and then the next thing is say, I'm so-and-so, and my question or point is, boom, and give it immediately, and then give me your details. If you do that, your call will go better, my screening process will go better, and I won't be, like, tired and need one more call and have you go on and on for, like, 30 seconds without hearing your point and just not really listen to your call, because I'll be honest with you, sometimes that happens. It's not personal. It's just I'm like, i got to find one more and get the show started, so... That's my way of helping you make a great call and helping you be more likely to get through my screening process. Before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, jmbullion.com. Hey, JM has got great selection, great pricing, and great service on silver. Um, I don't have a lot of people saying, hey, I got a problem with an order, but whenever I have had like a hiccup or a mess up or something, I email Michael over there, the owner, and boom, it's taken care of every single time. The kind of people I want having have on my show as, as sponsors is people like that, where I can talk to the owner and get a solution to a problem. That's JM, and great selection, too. Check them out today, jmbullion.com. They have a lot of really great products, and their pricing, they're competitive with some of the biggest guys in the industry. They have better pricing on, on, on you know generic silver rounds than Atmex does. That's huge that I have a company that could be that competitive and that personal at the same time working with us, jmbullion.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors are awesome. Every single person that takes training with Frank and his team just tells me they are blown away by the quality, the level, of the efficiency of the training. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. Remember, if you're trying to figure out what your next investment in your firearms portfolio is, it just might be time to make that investment instead of another gun, some training. Remember the triangle of, of, of weapon operation. Got to have a good, good functioning firearm. You don't have a gun. You can know, you, you know everything and have lots of ammo. And what are you going to do, throw bullets at somebody? Number two, you got to have ammo. You ain't got ammo, you got an overpriced club. I'm sorry, that's just the case. But number three is you, the operator. You're the linchpin. In that triangle, the weapon is in the bottom right corner, the uh, ammo is in the bottom uh, left corner, and you are at the top. You are the, the linchpin that holds the two together and makes that effectiveness work. Training is what it's all about. Fortress Defense Consultants can help you with that training and do it in a big way. Next up, I want to remind you guys about walkingtofreedom.com, and I want to do something right now. I'm going to play for you guys. 
something that came to me in an email. <laughs> and this is Walking to Freedom. We had nothing to do with this. Um, and it makes me almost like Rick Perry. I mean, I, I've had my issues with the governor of the state of Texas. I've also had a lot of times where things he said and done I've been very, very much in agreement with. And, and, and the other side, I mean, I, I, again, I don't want anybody to think I've become, you know, a, a bandwagon fan of Rick Perry. But uh, I do like some of the things he does. And even people that I disagree with a great deal, man, I give them kudos when they're doing the right thing. This, I think, is the right thing. This was broadcast on 11.10 a.m., Right into the heart of New York City, a listener heard this yesterday, sent me an email today. Uh, this is the largest listening audience AM radio station in America. Tell me this isn't walking to freedom happening right in front of our faces. The new New York sounds a lot like the old New York. Higher taxes, stifling regulations, bureaucrats telling you whether you can even drink a big gulp. This is Texas Governor Rick Perry. And there is a place where opportunity, freedom, and innovation are flourishing. And that's Texas. Our state is number one for business because we have no state income tax, fair and predictable regulations, and lawsuit reforms that keep trial lawyers out of your pocket so you can grow your business. Texas was ranked number one for business for the ninth straight year by Chief Executive Magazine and has added more jobs than any state in the nation over the last five years. If you're tired of the same old recipe of overtaxation, overregulation, and frivolous litigation, get out before you go broke. Visit TexasWideOpenForBusiness.com. Texas is calling. Your opportunity awaits. Um, I don't usually say this after something Rick Perry says, but hell yes. Hell yes. I mean, that's... Yeah, PR firm put it together for him and all, and they did a really polished professional job. And But yeah, I mean, that was beautiful. And again, folks, uh, that just yesterday came in from a listener who says, hey, I heard this uh, while I was driving down in New York City area, and uh, this was on the largest AM station in the country. And uh, I'm not saying everybody should come to Texas, but I am saying it's one place to consider And everything you just heard is true about the great state of Texas. And there's other states out there that have a lot to offer as well. And there's many of them that have more to offer than New York and Illinois and New Jersey and all the other ones in California that are just stepping on the throats of their citizens. So get on over to walkingtofreedom.com where you can uh, you know, realize real quick that it's easier to make some new friends and rent a moving van than it is to live under a state of oppression. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Remember, right now, though, there's a sale. TSP Summer is the discount code. Again, TSP Summer. You can use it online, or you can use the form on the bottom of the joining page. If you click on Pay by Check or, or uh, Silver by Mail, at the bottom you'll get a form to fill out. You can write it on there. And that will give you your first year for 30 bucks. Again, your first year for 30 bucks. If you're paying by mail, you can join for three years, four years. I don't care how many years you join. If you're paying with silver, I'm do what I'm doing is 17 months to the ounce. So it's the same discount basically by giving you more time. This is an awesome, huge sale. The silvered one alone, awesome. This runs to close a business Sunday. So Sunday night it ends. I'm probably not doing another sale this summer. This has been a very successful one, and I don't do them all the time because then it just devalues the daily price, right? So one-week sale for this summer, TSP Summer, 
And uh, this is a this is a good one to get in on if you've uh, been on the fence about the MSB. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call today. Hi, Jack. It's Jesse from San Diego. Hey, uh, I've been listening to your silver shows, and my question is, is there a reliable strategy for farming silver from the banks? Uh, I only ask because every other day I get an ad on my computer. Uh, these are the five magic words you need to do to get silver from the bank. Anyway, uh, my thoughts are it's probably BS, but uh, I was just wondering, Do you have any uh, clues or, or any kind of uh, ideas of how that might work? I'd appreciate hearing it from you. Thanks. Well, this is funny because initially I'm like, I don't really know what this guy's talking about. But then just the way he said it, add five magic words to say to a bank to get free silver. I'm like, I smell Porter Stansberry. I smell the stench of the scam artist that has a million of these things. So I type that into Google and I find, indeed, this comes from one of his people at Stanbury Research. It's a typical, and this would be probably a low-cost lead entry campaign to get people in the door so they can eventually sell you a $2,500 investment advice strategy thing that will probably make you go broke. People have asked why I don't like Porter Stansbury. This is a perfect example of why I don't. Because here was the here is the headline the caller's talking about. Say these five magic words to your local bank teller, and you could walk away with a handful of silver. And this is David Efrig, his secret magic phrase for getting silver from a bank. And, of course, at the end, you're asked to buy in. Well... I'm about to do something for you guys that I've been looking for a way to do kind of cool and creative for you for a long time. I'm about to tell you how whenever you get one of these things from Porter Stansberry or any of these other people following this exact model, there's five stocks that could make you a millionaire overnight. We'll tell you all about them, but we won't tell you what they are. And they'll go through this whole list of crap, and at the end they'll say, sign up now for three ninety nine ninety five or whatever it is, and you're like, I... I'm not going to give them that much money, but well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to know what they're talking about. That's the that's the play, right? That's the play. What they hope is that sooner or later they do this enough times with enough of these things that one of them comes along that's at your price point, right? So one might be a $900 thing. Mine, one might be $69 a month. You can cancel any time. So you might pay the first month to check it out and cancel whatever. However they can get you in the door as a paying customer and then really ratchet up the marketing on you. That's That's what this is all about. And if it was a really good, solid product that really delivered what it promised, I don't even know that I'd have a problem with that. But most of it's junk. And Porter Stansberry is on the hook for $1.5 million for defrauding people using this exact type of marketing. And he's gone right back to doing it. Um, he cited in an expert who says, I never told him jack shit about anything. And uh, his his uh, subscribers lost about a million dollars, and he collected about a million dollars. He made just about about the same amount of money that, uh, that that people lost. And the court system, knowing that if you want to find somebody, you have to find them enough money that it hurts, and you can't find a person that made a million dollars a half a million dollars. They find him a million and a half, fifty percent more, and he made off of the scam. And he's still fighting it in an appeals court, and he will lose. So that's why I don't like Porter Stansberry. But you know. They do use real information to sell this crap, and that's why it's so powerful. So one day I got an email from Porter Stansberry's people about this, you know, great strategy that Obama is using to, to fund his retirement and how it's available to you. 
And I'm reading, I'm kind of getting a clue of what it might be, but I thought, you know, I'm just wondering if anybody else has bought this. So I dropped the headline into the Google search, and I come up on a site that I love now. It's called Stock Gumshoe. And what this guy does is he takes all of these scams and using his pretty damn impressive knowledge, reverse engineers all the information and figures out what you would be paying for and tells you. So the next time you get one, search the headline and look for stockgumshoe.com's review of it. And odds are, and I don't know how the guy does this, it's like as soon as I get an email, he's already got it done. So maybe you'll have to wait a day or two sometimes. But this guy's on this thing, and he seems really smart. Maybe I should talk to him about coming on the show. Anyway, what is the secret to getting silver from your bank? Well, when he deconstructs the entire campaign, it's basically go to your bank and ask for half dollars. That's it. Can I please have some 50-cent pieces? And the reasoning is that they're not used, they're not circulated much. Most people hold on to them. Nobody asks for them. There's stuff laying around, so there's a higher probability that you'll get junk silver if you get 50-cent pieces than if you get dimes or quarters or, 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 or you know anything else, right? So that's what you do. You ask for 50-cent pieces. That's, that's what they want, $29.99 at the end of the thing to tell you. I'll go ask for 50 cent pieces. And what they really want is they want you in the door so that they can, now they've converted you from a, a cold lead, somebody that just reads their crap to somebody that spent money. Now they can start tailoring a campaign to figure out what to sell you next if you're not pissed off because it was go ask for 50 cent pieces. They're really good at what they do, but they're not really good at taking care of people. And their advice is, You know, I've gone through enough of the stock, stock gumshoe stuff now to know that many of the much of the advice that people pay for is losing advice and has a very poor track record of, of success. So this is why I don't like Porter Stansbury, but this is why I do like stock gumshoe because basically they put so much information into these things that you can reverse engineer them if you want to take the time to do so. But it involves sitting through you know a 15 minute to 30 minute flash driven video presentation, and I frankly have better things to do with my life. By the way, the secret strategy that Barack Obama was using to fund his retirement that he doesn't want you to know about, but you could be doing it too, was royalties. It was royalties, because see, Barack Obama wrote books. He'll get royalties on them. So the advice you would have paid for would have been do things to get royalties as part of your income. You don't want to know why I don't like Porter Stansberry? If I have to explain it after this, it's not worth explaining. It's not that none of his information is correct. I mean, as far as I know, he's telling everybody right now the natural gas boom is coming, just like I am. So we agree on that. My understanding is he's, and I could be wrong about this, but he's also been saying this is a secret way that Obama is going to get a third term. Yep. Obama will be able to circumvent the Constitution and get a third term because the economy will be so good by 2016 due to the natural gas. And here's the things you need to know to profit from it for $499.99 or whatever the hell it is. Be careful with crap like this, but know that if there really is an answer to the question, with a little creative use of Google and your friends over at stockgumshoe.com, well, you too can find out the answer without being forced to part with your money. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Eric in Missouri. I've been listening to your show since the very beginning, and it's been a huge impact on my life. Um, so I want to say thanks for that. And also, I've got two questions that are kind of related to each other. I was listening to your show about the uh, portrait of financial collapse, 
And I was wondering, do you have a plan in place to continue having your voice broadcast in the event of a widespread Internet outage? Uh, it seems to me to be really valuable to have some kind of trustworthy voice available out there that people listen to that's, uh, you know, going to give us a straight skinny on what's going on. So maybe ham radio or AM, FM transmitter, something like that. And the second question was, how can we share important information after an outage like that? You know, most people are connected on the Internet right now, and uh, having the isolation that would result from uh, having the Internet go down would be a really huge disaster for most people, be demoralizing. So I was wondering if you have any suggestions on things we can do to kind of prepare for that and maybe get some kind of communication infrastructure put together that's a little more resilient to um, either hacking or, you know, power outages or even interference from whatever may come. So thanks for everything, and I'll look forward to your answer. Thanks. Uh, the answer is, in many ways, no. I, I don't really have a continuity of TSP plan from a standpoint of broadcasting. It's something maybe we need to work on, but it'll probably never be what you're asking about because it's not logistically probable or possible. What I mean by that is you can't just take up a band on ham radio and start broadcasting and holding down the mic for an hour and a half. Can't do it. Um, ham radio is for communication and there's a certain etiquette and procedure and it's not for broadcasting. As far as getting some sort of an FM or AM transmitter and start pirate radio broadcasting of TSP in the middle of a collapse scenario like we're talking about, remember, I don't subscribe to the bullshit that you read in novels like the coming collapsed patriots, like that everybody will just leave and it'll be complete lawlessness and there'll be nobody to do anything about anything. I, I, I don't buy that. Uh, what you'll have is a very tyrannical, oppressive government trying to hold together what it can. Um, and in that case, if you start violating FCC regulations, especially when you're saying what they don't want, boy, they have an opportunity to come and put the kibosh on you. So if I did that, I might as well just say, this will be the final broadcast. Good luck. Goodbye and good luck, right? That's what would be at the end of that broadcast. So they probably have trucks, even in that scenario, tearing down my equipment by the time I've finished. So... I don't believe in abusing the public airways anyway, so I probably wouldn't do either one of those. So what is the biggest way that the continuity of TSP can continue? All of you. Every day now, 75-ish thousand is where we're at right now, for those that like to keep tabs on where we're at. 75,000-ish files are downloaded from the Survival Podcast from episodes that have been published within the last 24 hours. So that means about that many a day of new downloads, not somebody that goes in and downloads you know, 100 episodes of old ones. That's the new files. So that means there's about 75,000 of you out there, and hopefully my... Podcasts are on 75,000 computers, iPhones, iPads, disks, uh, USB drives, however you want to store them. MSB members can go in on day one and download every single episode in very convenient zip file blocks. So the, the information is now portable, and even without an Internet connection, could be listened to everywhere. And hopefully, if we get to a point where I can't continue broadcasting by then, I still have tremendous value in helping you deal with what I saw coming. Okay, So that's, that's that. The other thing is, I do not believe we will ever go into a world with a sustained, complete, and total grid-down operation. I really don't. I don't think, and if we do, we're at war, okay? That's the, it's not going to happen because the economy crumbles. It's not like the economy's going to crumble and then all the lights are just going to, and then other, it's, 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 it's not realistic. 
Uh, the people that are still here, which would be all of us, we're going to do everything we can to try to hold something together and utilities and power and things like that. Yeah. Um, peak oil is not going to hit. We'll have no energy. It's, it's not, not in your lifetime. Okay. Uh, does that mean we will have no issues with a dwindling oil supply at all in the next 25, 30 years? Probably not. We probably will have some problems with it, but it's not going to be like things are going to go out. In the words of Jason Akers, as sad as it makes him, To say this, we will burn down the last pine tree in this country to turn a turban before somebody turns off one Xbox. And I think there's some truth to that. Maybe not quite that extreme, but it does make some sense when you look at the way this country runs. So if we ever get to a point where there's no Internet and it's not coming back for years and, and my business is kind of shut down due to that, Frankly, I'm going to have problems other than how do I broadcast a show today? Like, how do I keep myself and my family alive? Uh, how do we keep, you know, marauders from stealing from us? What have you? How do we put this damn country back together? And at the point where it's, it would make sense for me to be on the air every day again, that point would be the point at which there's an infrastructure to do it with. So that's, that's kind of how I feel about that. But maybe we do need a plan for, Broadcasting and rebroadcasting somehow with a, you know, like free net, private internet, what have you, something like that. And I think there's a lot of work being done to create peer to peer private networks, which may have a lot of it, but you still need to get in to the network. There's, there's, there's a place out there for someone to build an internet that as long as you can tie into it in any way, shape, or form, it works and it's independent of the government. Things are being done to work on that, but that's not me. I, I don't have the ability uh, to do that. Now, as far as people communicating with each other, ham radio is excellent for that. Um, it's a very good reason, at least if you're not going to be a ham, have somebody in your group or your, your extended group that's a ham radio person uh, that can do that. Um, ha even CBs and things like that would play a, a huge role. I can see a day where the hams are the ones that are, um, that are disseminating information, uh, but they're specialized and they're using skip technology and all different types of things to extend a, a huge network and relay information all over the country. But then that ham, you know, that's sitting in front of his, his boxes and gadgets and doodads and stuff just spins around, picks up a, a CB that's, you know, the hell with the FCC on this. It's pumping out 100, 150 watts um, or more uh, and, and, and just rebroadcasts over a local CB net what was just said over a, a larger national ham net. I can see that with CB being very accessible and even in a complete you know road warrior collapse, anybody that can put together a, a you know a, a 12 volt battery, uh, a salvage solar panel off a street sign and tear a, a CB out of an abandoned rig would be able to listen and transmit. So I mean, I think that's but the biggest thing, is talking to your freaking neighbors so that when, you know, if the grid's down, well, how will we communicate without the Internet? How do we communicate in 1980? I mean, I know we had phones and fax machines, but seriously, when you wanted to talk to somebody, a lot of times what you did is you walked over to their house, knocked on a door. And that's what we need to bring back. Don't be technology. There might be times we go without it. There might be times when it fails. But this is the big thing that I want people to stop being afraid of. It's not going to all go away. It's not going to all go away. And if it does, then nobody's going to be doing anything like what we do right now. 
Okay? There's no way to do it and not have it here. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. It's not going to all go away. Even if it all fails, we will put it back. That is what we do. And we now know how to do it, and we now know that it can be done. Therefore, we are not going to not have it. And to really understand how amazing our ability as a species is to actually do these things, you need to consider what life was like just 113 years ago in the year 1900. And how many things we don't have now, we did, we don't, we have now, we didn't have then. And what we did in a hundred years. And then just say, okay, let's go back to 1980. What do we have now that we don't have in 1980, 1985? 1985, we had an internet. I was on it. Um, I was, uh, on it with my buddy David down in Jacksonville, Florida, and we were doing some cool things back then with Commodore 64s, and I eventually was envied because I got a Commodore 128D. All right, and we had peer-to-peer, and we had dial-in chat rooms and things like that, and I think our modems were running at like 96, 96 kbps, <laughs> something like that. Maybe it was even slower, I don't remember, but you actually dialed the phone and then put the modem in the cradle. I mean, I remember these things, and, and, and it's amazing how far we've come, and then people think, well, if something falls apart, we will never figure out how it went together in the first place. I'm telling you, folks, there is a, a transition, a shift coming, but it's not all going to go away. Again, it will fail in parts for a period of time, but we'll put it back together. The key is making it through that period of time. That's what we really prepare for. Let's take another one. Hello, this is Joe in San Antonio. I believe this is a question for Stephen Harris. Uh, Coleman sells fuel. It's clear fuel for stoves, and it's in a sealed one-gallon can. I believe you have to poke through metal to get through it. And it seems like if it would run in a car well, it would be a good way to have spare fuel in the trunk of a enclosed vehicle as opposed to a gas can in the back of the truck. So the question is, will that run well in a modern vehicle without causing any problems? I think that would be very useful prep to put in my wife's car. Um, not that she runs out of gas, but, uh, you know, so you could give it to somebody else, whatever. It would be expensive, but seems like it might be a good option. And if that is not an option, what can you do in an enclosed vehicle to keep the dunes from killing you? All righty. Thank you very much. Love what you do. Been listening for a long time. Bye. So let's hear what Mr. Harris has to say about that. Joe from San Antonio, thank you for calling in. This is Steve Harris from the Expert Panel, here to answer your question. The Coleman Fuel Can. Well, you know, Joe, I'm sitting here in a hotel on the road right now, and I got your question. I go, huh? They put a metal seal in? And I actually got up and went to the Walmart at 10 o'clock at night and found a Coleman Fuel Can and opened it up, and there's no metal seal. I opened two of them just to make sure I was crazy, and there's no metal seal. What it is is just a darn good sealing can. Now, to answer your question, under no circumstances, in no shape, fashion, way, or any form, will Coleman Fuel ever, ever work 
in a modern vehicle or an old vehicle or any vehicle. Coleman fuel is 100% incompatible with a gasoline motor vehicle and a diesel vehicle and a natural gas vehicle and a propane. It's just completely incompatible with all vehicles. Am I making myself absolutely clear here? Now, it is a good container. So theoretically, if you wanted to take a Coleman can and pour all of the fuel like into a gas can just to save it and then put one gallon of gasoline into the Coleman can and screw it down real tight and put it into your vehicle, it seems like that would be a good one-gallon can to which to do this. Now, with this being said, remember, those of you know who don't know me, I was an automobile engineer, a development engineer for Chrysler Corporation for 10 years. I am very familiar with crash dynamics. Putting any type of metal container, and I would almost say any gas container, in a vehicle on a regular basis is about as absolutely foolhardy as you could possibly get. You are asking for death. A good crash that is easily survivable if you're belted in is between 30 and 50 Gs, a 30 to 50 times the force of gravity. Severe crashes get up to 100 times the force of gravity. This little middle can in your trunk or anywhere within your vehicle is going to find itself ripped apart like an egg hitting a concrete wall and it is going to fill your vehicle with 120 BTUs of a very volatile liquid just looking for any ignition source i.e. heavy crash dynamics and metal ripping to light you up like a Roman candle. So I would tell you the following you do not run out of food you do not run out of water you do not run out of gas that's just it you do not run out of fuel. You do not need to carry backup fuel because you are not going to run out of fuel. This is not like two is one, one is none. This is not like, my oh, this is my reserve parachute. This is where your reserve parachute will kill you. You have a primary chute that will always positively work every time, and that is you don't run out of fuel. Now, if you were bugging out or something, leaving your location and you had to take along your fuel reserve with you so you wouldn't die because of the zombie plague after you ran out of one tank of fuel, I would feel comfortable with you putting multiple five-gallon cans or any other form of cans of fuel in your car, vehicle, backseat, uh, trunk and everything else because you're leaving and the chances of you having an accident are really pretty small but the chances of you having an accident with one gallon of fuel in your vehicle when you're driving it all the time is pretty darn high so i'm sure jack will have some really good comments on this and help fill in for you uh, thank you very much for calling in this is steve harris from the expert panel and for those of you who are new to tsp who doesn't know who steve harris is i'm the energy guy and if you'd like to hear some of my past shows with Jack, you can hear them all, and they're good ones, at solar1234.com. That's S-O-L-A-R-1234.com. Thank you, guys. I agree uh, mostly uh, here. When I take trips like, let's say, San Antonio to El Paso, I always have reserve fuel on that trip. Not so much for me. But because if I see somebody, you know, on the side of I-10 and I'm 100 miles from Fort Stockton on that trip, I'm 100 miles from the nearest gas because both El Paso and uh, San Antonio are further than that away from me. And it doesn't matter what side of Fort Stockton I'm on, that's the case. So I've got a 100-mile trip, 200 miles to come back and help somebody. 
Um, so when I take long trips, I have backup fuel. I am a big fan when you're carrying backup fuel of having proper uh, containment for it. Something in the neighborhood of like a NATO jerry can. I like that strapped down. And I generally, for those types of trips, I'm going to take something designed to do this, like a truck. Or if you were like my buddy Brian, who has an FJ Cruiser, and he'll be probably happy tonight when he comes over for scotch and a cigar to find out that I might be joining the FJ Cruiser Club soon, because I think the Dodge Ram is about at a point where it's going to cost me more to keep it than get rid of it. And I'm in the market for my first new vehicle since I bought the Jetta Diesel in 2006, and it's probably time to go ahead and get a new one. So I'm looking at an FJ. Well, he has this really cool roof rack that I'll be looking at tonight, and he, he you know, when he's on these long distance trips, he'll put. Uh, five NATO cans up there. Well, they're not going to go through his vehicle. They might go somewhere. But uh, And I think there's there's proper ways to do this. I used to, and there's shows where I'm recommending this in the very beginning, carry gas with me at all times. I don't do it anymore. Um, carrying a gallon or two or five, it seems like it makes sense, except, well, you have this thing called a fuel tank. It's designed to carry fuel. And would you really buy a different car if there was one more gallon in it? The reason I've always been of the, the, the opinion to carry ex extra fuel is exactly for the, the assistance to fellow drivers. And then I realized something one day. Jack, unless you're traveling you know, from San Antonio to El Paso, which I don't do very often, or you're on some type of a long-haul trip like that with large uh, distances with no support, You don't really need that to be able to help somebody because all you have to carry is a suitable container uh, to transport a gallon or two of fuel in and just say, you know what, hang on, I'll hook you up. You know, Maybe help the guy push his vehicle off the road, run down the road, you're going to find a gas station just about anywhere, and go get him some gas. And then I'm not hauling gas around. And then I can carry one container because if there's a little bit of gas and then the guy's in a diesel or vice versa, you know, like a couple drip drops or fumes, it's not going to matter. So by carrying an empty container suitable for the transportation, filling up of, and a, including it to another vehicle uh, thing, we can make sure that we're able to assist by making sure we have some money at all times to be able to do that. So that that was the primary reason I did it. Um Now, I'm not so sure that you can't come up with a way to safely haul things that won't turn into projectiles. Um, if we can hold a person in place, I'm sure there is a way to do this. It's just that most vehicles are probably not set up for it, and Steve certainly knows more about the construction of a modern automobile than I do. And This is why he also doesn't advise you to build a battery backup system in the trunk of your car. But again, I do believe that if you if you take certain measures to properly bolt to a frame anything, if it doesn't stay put at that point, it's probably moot because the 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 accident would have had to occur with such force that they were peeling you out of the car in pieces anyway. I'm not saying if you just toss it in the back or use a, you know a cheap strap that's attached to like I don't know like the you know the thin piece of metal that you can get to or something that's that's under the you know the bottom of the trunk I'm not saying that that's not going to come out of there but I mean look at a spare tire the way that a spare tire and this is you know this is a little safety lesson here for you folks I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody open a trunk and we're doing something in their car and I look at their spare tire and it's just sitting in there And it's not attached. And I asked them why. And they said, well, you know, I had to uh, you know, use it the other day. And I 
got my tire fixed, and I just threw it back in there because it's, it's I don't care. And there's a reason that your car came with your spare tire, you know, down in a little well with a thing on it, screwing it, holding it in, or up against the side of the trunk with some type of, you know, apparatus holding it still. And it's exactly what Steve said, because if you hit something doing 60, 70 miles an hour, you can very well likely survive the crash, but you may not survive the tire flying through the air and hitting you in the back of the head and driving your face out the window, right? Where you and your head, your, your body stays in your seat and your head is gone. So it is important that you think about anything with any significant amount of weight in the back of a car and how it is secured because that back passenger seat is a very, very false sense of security uh, protecting you from what might come out of the back of that. For instance, when I was a kid, I was in a car wreck. Um, a friend uh, borrowed his mom's car. That's what he told us. He actually stole his mother's car. We were out joyriding. Uh, I soon wanted out of the vehicle, but it was not possible. And he went over uh, a hill that we all used to drive over a little bit too fast where you could catch a little air with the front of the car. But he thought it would be fun to do it in the other lane. We came down in front of another vehicle. He swerved. We hit, we went upside down, slid about 200 feet on the roof. Uh, I ended up using a coat over my head, smashing a window out with my head to get out of the car, dragging everybody else out of the car. Uh, nobody was seriously injured, but one of our buddies had a pretty good lump on his head from a bowling ball that was in the back of the Ford Escort wagon that came up and hit him in the head. But fortunately for us, that wasn't a collision. It was a rollover. Had we actually hit those other people, in addition to possibly killing them, because my friend was, who is no longer my friend, was a freaking idiot, um, that bowling ball would have probably done the type, it would have turned into flames, but it probably would have become the type of projectile Steve was talking about. So there's a safety lesson there as well with heavy implements in our vehicles. There's also a safety lesson in this. I've also seen people that have changed their battery. The little strap-down thing's a pain in the ass. It's hard to get back. They realize their battery just sits there. It's heavy. It's not going anywhere. doesn't mean it won't go anywhere in a crash. And in this case, it might go forward out of your vehicle. It's not as likely, but it could happen. There's that big old firewall between you and there. So it's not as big a risk, but it's not a good idea to not have your battery strapped down either. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Gene in Florida here with some comments for your economic collapse episode. We're talking about the United States and what might happen. A um, couple theories on it myself, alternate theories and questions. Uh, number one is the, when Russia collapsed, you also had a lot of influence from the Russian mafia. I could expect the exact same amount of corruption here with our American mafia. Um, number two, also, something we haven't heard of in a long time, the American Union. With uh, economic collapse, it would be a much better way to transition into this American Union. I could almost see it as a team collective where the American Union, Europe, and some of our bigger allies lining up to go up against the British nations in an economic warfare type deal where if everything is closed off, we just trade amongst our own little allies or something like that. Oh, third thing, Florida. To really get Florida to stop from seceding, whatever little bit of money is left over from the Social Security, they could threaten to take that away from the seniors. Florida is very senior citizen uh, with a highly population. 
you've been to Sambo Island, you know this. So, <laughs> okay. Um, that's it. Love your show. Take care. I don't expect this on there. Take care. Bye-bye. See, now he got three major points in with, with one call, and so it shows that you can do it if you stick to your point. Let's start out with the first one. First one, the, the mob uh, ex- extending their influence and control and using whatever public officials are still in place, leveraging them to get greater control, taking opportunities where the rule of law has fallen and is, is not what it used to be to, to have greater influence and, 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 you know, just do greater harm. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I think I actually said that things like that would happen uh, in the show that the caller's referencing. So I, I completely and totally agree with that point. And uh, it'll, you know, I, I think I've said many times that uh, my friend Valerie Azanov, who uh, was a member of the KGB uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart, immediately after the Soviet Union fell apart, was fortunate enough to be able to obtain, probably due to some of his contacts, a passport so that he could leave. And he went to England, where he lived for a long time, and eventually he now is um, in uh, the UAE training Royal Security uh, Forces of the UAE. And he visits his family uh, from time to time, but he won't live in Russia ever again. Uh, actually, Ukraine is where he's from. Uh, and he said that at that point, when the veil came down and certain things like who you were became known, that if you were a former KGB agent, there were not a lot of options immediately. Now, this may not be the case anymore, but we're talking right at the time of the fall. No one would have you. So he left because his other choice was to begin working with the Russian mafia. So absolutely. Okay, the North American Union. Um, I don't think so. And, and let me tell you why. The time that they were able to create the EU was a time of economic prosperity. Okay? Things were going good. You consolidate power when things are going good. Yes, you will, you will increase tyranny by using a crisis as an excuse, but when you really want to consolidate power, you need money, you need cooperation, and you need the illusion that it's good. Okay? When you have economic collapses, there's never been the economic collapse of anything that's directly resulted in bringing more society more states into a collective it always goes the other way it always breaks apart it doesn't congeal at a time of collapse is there a move to create a north american union absolutely absolutely is it quite at the level that the uh the tin hat all the way out on the edge conspiracy theorist thinks of probably not it, it is more of an economic partnership that will then of course erode and dissolve sovereignty Um, but I don't think an economic collapse is the is the the point you get it done. The point you get it done maybe is long after the collapse in the rebuilding, if you can sell it to people then. But no, because what you'll have is a nation trying to hold itself together, and who are you going to union with? Canada? Canada's going to be screwed in this thing too, but nowhere near as screwed as we're going to be. They have abundant energy resources more than they need for themselves so they can they can float that they have a socialist economy but they do know how to balance a checkbook okay so 
they're not going to want anything to do with this ship when it's falling apart and the rats, rats are jumping off of it. They may very well have to increase border security to keep some of us the hell out of Canada. Yes, that could happen. Mexico brings nothing to the table in this. There's nothing that they do to help us in this. There's no advantage to us or to them. They are more corrupt. They have more crime. They have less economic power. There's no way that you can merge what would be, let's look at it this way. This would be like Mexico is Dave's, uh, Dave's discount store with five locations, four of which are breaking even and one that's losing money. Okay. And the United States is Walmart. And Walmart comes on high, hard financial times and some genius up in Bentonville says, you know what? This is what we'll do. We'll merge with Dave's Discount Center and that'll solve our problems. Right? Not going to happen. The economic power of Canada and Mexico isn't sufficient and Canada would be harmed by it. So Canada don't want nothing to do with it. Mexico can't do it. And the United States would be in a situation where they can't even keep, you know, a state like Texas from possibly saying, you know, screw off, we're done. And I'm serious. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it is more than possible. And again, we can look at the Soviet Union, and it didn't get bigger. It got smaller. Right? If we look at the Roman Empire, it didn't get bigger. First it split in half. Then the halves began to fractionalize. Then the whole thing came unwound. And all of a sudden we ended up with these little uh, city-states all over the place that eventually became the, let's say, postmodern version of Europe before we went into the modern times and had a whole new way to cut things up. So in collapses, you collapse. You don't build. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying the fall apart is a lot more probable than the put together during a fall apart. Uh, let's, and the last part, uh, prevent Florida from seceding by cutting off the social security checks that are already worthless. I just don't see the, see, it's a moot point at that point. If you're in this situation, guys, okay? If you're in this situation, the way a state's gonna secede is to have their own wealth and be able to take care of their own people. So the way, if you have a, a large retired population in your state and you want to secede, you got to already figured out how are you going to take over that role of people that can't just you can't say okay you know what because there's people that you know what you would say let's say if we were, let's say that Georgia did this right and and there would be people yo man where's my check where, where where's my check I mean you know I'm I'm disabled you're disabled what's your problem my back hurts. Yeah? Let me see. Can you sign this piece of paper right here? Can you sign this? Well, what's that? Just, I mean, you need to sign this form for me. And they sign the form. And you go, so you can work a pen. Well, yeah, I can work a pen. Okay, you can find a job. Goodbye. Right? I mean, there'd be a case for that, too. A lot of the people that are riding the gravy train in the state, if you want that gravy train, the border's that way, you can go back to what's left. See if, you, if they'll give you anything. But we're done with that. But you can't tell that to a 75-year-old lady. So you would have to, as a state, come up with a way to take over the role of at least providing a substance for those people. And a lot of people who have simply said, well, I don't need to worry about mom and dad, would so all of a sudden have to start worrying about mom and dad again. Because there wouldn't be the same amount. It would, and the whole thing is, you see, at this point, the economy is completely destroyed anyway. So... the. You're at a situation there where, you know, what check are they going to cut off? The one that doesn't buy one can of beans. So it doesn't matter anymore. 
It is a way that they would try to sell holding it together, though. You are right about that. It wouldn't just be for Florida. It would be for the whole country. Because, like I said, they would immediately come out with a new currency, put in capital and pricing controls, and say at least your government check, not just Social Security, but your government check for government employees, uh, for retirees, for people on disability, still buys you enough to get by. And yes, if you leave, that'll go away. And then it will be up to the people in individual regions to decide, is that worth making a deal with the people that did this in the first place? And I take no joy in this. I want people to understand that. I take no joy in this. My hope is that we actually would hold together, that we would actually hold together, and we would actually fix it long term. But I also am a realist, and I'm telling you that may not be possible. And in the end, hopefully whatever we build, whether we build it as a, a new confederation of territories or the same old 50 states, whatever it ends up being, Hopefully it's with some more common sense and it's better. And even if we do, society has shown us that over about 200 years, the people we leave it to will screw it up and be right back in the fourth turning. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. Love the show. Hi. Um, I'm calling about uh, Natural Springs. I bought a uh, seven acres, uh, beautiful property, old house, had a spring in the basement. I get about uh, four gallons per minute of water no matter what time of year it is, because it's uh, underground, and it always runs in a nice, lovely, uh, between 50 to 60 degrees year-round. I'm going to put a pond in. There was already one there. I'm going to clean it up and repair it. But I wanted to know, do you have any other ideas or suggestions about having that much water coming through and what else you can do with it? I was wondering about greenhouses for the winter. Is there some way to use that to uh, help heat, heat a winter greenhouse if I pumped it directly into there? Anyhow, thanks. Love the show. I punted that one because I didn't want to deal with the fact he said it was in the basement. Um, I, I was like, I don't know what you mean by that. and So I sent it over to Paul Wheaton, and he's got some great answers, but I think he kind of punted the basement part of it, too, and said, that just can't be. I must have misunderstood that. Um, so, caller, if your spring is inside your basement, please follow up with us. And explain how that works to us, because I don't get it. It might be in some way. Maybe the basement's actually not a basement. Maybe it's a surface stone thing that's built up, and then the house is built on it, almost like you build a house on, on stilts at an island or something. I don't understand how that works, but Paul does have some good answers about what to do with your spring, so let's hear from Mr. Paul Wheaton, expert council member on permaculture things. Hello, Jack and mystery caller. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com, uh, doing my part to be on the expert council. So, uh, I've now listened to this question seven times because I had to back it up early on. I think you said you have a spring in your basement. Um, I'm, I'm going to guess that you don't really have a spring in your basement. Otherwise, your question would be, I have a spring in my basement. How do I get it out? But uh, I, I'm going to guess that you actually have a spring somewhere else on your property, and that word just got garbled or something. I don't know what. All right. <clears throat> Moving along. 
you mentioned something about a pond and how you're going to route your spring into a pond. And of course, I want to spend hours talking about how you're going to seal your pond and things like that. But let's just assume that you got all of that from a previous podcast I did with Jack. So you're all covered. You're good. You don't need to hear more about that. Um, I, I do want to emphasize that when you get your water to your pond, try to have a high dribble point. Um, this helps to put more oxygen into the water. So if you can somehow get a trough, a wooden trough or something like that to go up high, and then the water then dribbles directly into the water uh, in, for, of the pond from a high point, there's a lot more oxygen that ends up in the water. And that improves the overall quality of the water in your pond, both for fish and other life in your pond. Uh, it, it'll be... It'll be alive and clear and um, in a, a good way rather than turning into that kind of funky, nasty kind of mosquito pit that some people create. Um, and the other thing is the timing. I think by the time this podcast comes out, my podcast will have just come out. Uh, we did one on uh, Earthworks. So um, if you come out to permies.com, um, I've got some podcasts that were all started by Jack. So um, I think we've got 250 podcasts now. But we just released one on Earthworks. We did an Earthworks workshop where we built some ponds and swales and things of that nature. And uh, we go into a lot of detail about that. Now, your question is, other uses for this spring? So, of course, the first thing that pops into my mind is a spring house. Um, and for those that don't know, a spring house is where you take spring water and you route it into a little building. Uh, usually, they traditionally were made out of stone. It doesn't have to be. But um, you'd route it in this little building, and you'd have something like a little trough that would run around the perimeter of the spring house, sometimes half of the perimeter, sometimes three quarters of the perimeter. But um, uh, the water would run in at one point and dribble through and then run back out. Uh, and then people could, would use it like a refrigerator. You would put things in this little shallow trough. The, the water might run an inch deep, two inches deep, or something like that. Some spring houses would have the water run like eight or nine inches deep, and then you would put your milk in there to chill. Um, so then this this uh, trough uh, would, would be great, and it would be a, like the, a substitute for a refrigerator with one little problem. And that is that you just said that your water is like 50 to 60 degrees, which makes it really warm compared to most spring houses. So you must be living uh, south of me. I'm, I'm up in Montana, and, and our spring water is going to be a lot colder than that. Um, so let's, let's suppose that, uh, that it's too warm, so spring house is out. That's probably not going to work for you. Um, but another thing for colder areas that, that I once had an idea for, but I never implemented was to have a spring house. And I would also have on one half of it to be a dry root cellar. And this is where I would run the spring water through pipes in a room, uh, like a root cellar or a spring house, but then the water would be encased in the pipe. And then I would intentionally try to get water to condense on the pipe, thus removing water from that room. And so uh, th some things like to be stored where it's cool and moist, and some things like to be stored where it's cool and dry. So uh, I would have two rooms, and then I would actually add a third room where it would do the same thing with the pipes, but this would be a cold smoker. So when you do your cold smoking with a room where you can keep the temperature down even lower, then, then you can get better smoking results for, for smoking meats and the like. Um, another interesting idea of what to do with the spring is something that I read in, about 30 years ago in one of the Earthships books. And um, they were trying to answer a question, what happens if I build an Earthship and then suddenly spring rolls around and out pops a spring in the middle of my living room? And um, the response there was, 
make it a feature. <laughs> now, granted, this isn't going to be for everybody, but I do think that some people would totally groove on having a little creek running through their house. And, and, and my first thought was, is like, are you nuts? That's so stupid. But then after thinking about it for a bit, it's like, you know, you could get that to be totally cool. I mean, you could get it to be really lame, but you could also get it to be really cool. So there's, there, there might be ways to do it. I'm not, Thinking you're probably going to do that, but but hey, it's a fun thing to think about. Um, the uh, the next item I've got written down here is an outdoor fountain. Uh, if if your spring is up high and and your house is down low, you just run a pipe down there and you can have an all year fountain going. That could be kind of cool. Um, and of course, the permaculture solution is going to be that you're going to um, you know keep that water slow on your land, go back and forth across your land, and you're going to try and reduce the wind on your land. And then the water that evaporates off of your spring water that's flowing through your land will then show up um, as dew in the morning and reduce your need for any kind of irrigation. Now, you mentioned something about a greenhouse. And with such warm water, I think that that's not a bad idea. But another thing is that with such warm water, I kind of wonder how much you need a greenhouse. But if the water is warm, isn't the earth going to be pretty warm too? In which case, I think look into Mike Ayler's work on greenhouses and, and try to, um, create a trench like what Mike Ayler has in that, uh, in his book that he describes. All right. I think that's it for me. Thanks, Jack. Talk to you later. Good stuff as always from Paul Wheaton. Uh, remember, if you have a question for the expert council members, just call it in and make sure you state who it's for at the beginning of the call. This one wasn't. I will at times choose as my prerogative to, to punt a question to somebody I think might do a better job with it than I would have. Uh, in that case, I think I made the right decision here. Expert council members include, because I don't have them on the site, I know I need to get off my ass and do this. Frank Sharp Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants is one of our expert council members. Joe Nobody is one of our expert council members on kind of the seedier, you know, more uh, graphic side of the, the breakout or a bug out uh, societal breakdown stuff from his work with uh, his books. Um, ben Falk, who is the other side of permaculture answers, because I have certain questions that I know that Ben's working on things that he would be a better person to go to than Paul. Paul Wheaton for permaculture questions as well. You can address to either one of them or tell me, I don't care, you pick Jack, which one would answer this. I usually have some stuff to say about that too. I'm letting Paul handle this one all together because he did a great job on it. Um, we also have uh, Tim Glantz of uh, Old Grouch Military Surplus for questions on vehicles, military vehicles, alternative fuels, things like that, uh, when it comes to things like reusing old motor oil and, and, and cool, cool stuff like that. And, of course, our, I think our most popular panel member for questions on all things energy, Stephen Harris. Uh, I really enjoy his answers a lot of times. So uh, those are people that you can call in a specific question for. Uh, we've heard from two of them today. That'll be it for our expert counsel today. But uh, it is a value add that I try to bring you guys. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take your next call. Hello, Jack. This is Chris from me. I uh, just want to let you know that there's about five in those rounds. The areas are kind of set full. Those are beautiful. Uh, I just have a question, though. I was, just, I was uh, looking at the, the the back of it, and it looked like there was like a right angle, almost like a, like a mason's square in the back. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. I still think it looks really cool. I uh, just want to know if that was the case or if it's just a uh, Chevron or something like that from the military or something along those lines. Hey, Wesley, thank you very much for everything you do, and you have a great day. Bye.
Uh, that was the quality of that call was absolutely terrible. But I've gotten this question by email so many times, I decided to go ahead and, and, and use it anyway. Generally speaking, guys, I don't know if the guy was in a bad area or what, but if your call sounds like that, it doesn't get used. It was rather short, and I can restate it for those that may have missed out on what he was saying. Basically, he said he got some of the Sentinel, TSP Silver Sentinel coins, the regular brilliant uncirculated ones, uh, with the shield and the, the weapons on the back of it. And is that a Mason's Square... Uh, behind the weaponry on the shield. No, it is pretty much what he said, a chevron. If you go and Google Spartan shield and look on images, you'll see that the Spartan shield generally had that sort of chevron style marking on it. So that's what that is. Um, just for anybody that's had the questions, no, there's no Masonic symbology on the Sentinel. Uh, let's take another uh, another question. Hey, Jack, uh, this is Brian in northern New Jersey. I have a question about using grass clippings and leaves from a landscaper, my brother-in-law is a landscaper, into making the backyard, um, just turning it into topsoil. Um, I would need an awful lot of topsoil, which would be quite expensive, but uh, I could get grass clippings and leaves from cleanups for free. Um, actually, it's benefits him too where he's got a place to dump it so i was just wondering what your thoughts were on that and how long would that kind of a process take to create a topsoil or a dirt layer where i could eventually make the art for my kids uh thanks jack love the show keep up the good work bye All right, so let's start out with just being a little bit more technically accurate. If you were to start building soil using grass clippings and leaves, you would not be building topsoil. You'd be building compost, which is uh, going to help turn the top layer of your soil to uh, topsoil layer with compost layer on top of it eventually. So you'd be composting if you did this, and that would be great if we could trust the material. Leaves. So uh, if you can get leaves from a landscape or just from your neighbor raking them up, how do I feel about using those as mulch or an ingredient in compost? I feel wonderful about it, and then I'll tell you why. Because if they're spraying crap on the lawn, only so much of it can get into the tree in the first place, and very little of it's going to end up in the leaves, and it's a minuscule amount of a toxic yick that isn't going to do a daggone thing to hurt nothing especially once it's been composted. So I got no problem with leaves. Grass clippings. Ugh. It might be the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst thing that you could use if you didn't want toxic yick on your ground that will kill your plants as long as they're any plant other than grass. Here's why. The worst chemicals in the world for weed control that then turn around and kill things like your tomatoes and your potatoes and weaken everything are not being sprayed on agricultural fields. Let me say it again. They're not being sprayed on agricultural fields. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of toxic yick there. But the worst offenders, like Amelia Penethate, being sprayed on lawns. The biggest source of herbicide residue in our society today, specifically persistent herbicides, is the American lawn. If you're driving by and looking at somebody's yard 
and they have one type of grass in it, and it's all the same, and there's not a weed to be seen anywhere, and it looks so beautiful and green, it's probably laced with toxic yick. And since your buddy's a landscaper, the majority of people that will pay somebody to mow their yard and rake their leaves will also be paying somebody, maybe the person that's doing it, to spray crap on their grass and do the true green chemlon thing or something like that and kill all the weeds. So the, the, the biggest probability is that if you're getting grass clippings from a landscaper, unless they are an organic landscaper with organic clients that don't do this crap, you're literally almost guaranteed of having the material you're using being laced with not just herbicides like Roundup, but persistent herbicides like Amelia Penethate that has a seven-year or longer half-life, and therefore I wouldn't use that material, with the exception. If you can talk to your buddy and say, listen, you have a bunch of different clients. If you have clients that you know never, ever spray shit on their lawns, and they're probably lawns that don't look that great, and they just want you to mow it, and they don't care that it doesn't look that great. The ones that you've been saying, hey, we can get rid of those clovers and dandelions for you, and they say, leave it alone... On days that you're mowing them, if you can guarantee me the grass clippings only come from those people, that is gold. It is green gold that goes with brown gold that makes black gold. Here's how. The grass and the leaves. Shred the leaves. Run them over with a lawnmower, what have you. Mix that with grass. Put that together and it will compost like the most beautiful, heat up, quick, fast, Turn it to black compost stuff you can get your hands on. Brown shredded leaves and fresh cut green grass, boys. If you put those together, I'm telling you in three days, stick your hand in the center of that pile and it will burn you. You'll have to pull it out. Flip it a few times and you're talking a meter or more cubic yard, cubic meter of compost or more like that. And yeah, getting some manure and stuff into it is all great and well, but that alone... As long as you get enough brown and don't overdo the green, it will cook. And you'll have beautiful stuff to spread. And if you start out with a cubic yard like that, you'll end up with almost a cubic yard. It won't even shrink that much. But only if you know the source of the grass clippings. Again, the leaves I'm not as concerned with. But if you get grass clippings from somebody with a beautiful lawn today, I'm almost going to guarantee you that it's saturated with the very things you do not want to bring on your property. Sorry to say that, because if they weren't doing that, the people that want nicely mowed lawns and want everything taken away would have a market for what they now consider as waste. But as long as people are out there putting this crap on their lawns, be careful. It is worse, it is worse than most of what comes out of agricultural waste. It really is. It may not stay that way. I mean, the agricultural people are just doing worse and worse crap as well. But to put it this way, 2,4-D. 2,4-D, if not used to excess and only being a part of components made into a compost, and you made the mistake of putting it on your property, even though we're talking about a chemical that's one, you know, one chemical alteration away from Agent Orange, and really should not be made, let alone used on our food. But even though that's the case, within about a year, year and a half, you'll be able to grow anything you want. It will biodegrade. You put a millipenethate on there, and you look at seven, eight years before it stops having a major effect and a lingering effect for maybe another five years. 
So you got to be careful with the lawn waste. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Joe Near, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Baby Harley 82nd on the forum. My question is, when we make woody beds, should we avoid putting green matter into the woody bed? The reason why I ask this is because you have mentioned in making ponds, when you put green matter underneath the soil, it creates glee, which will seal the pond. Uh, when, uh, when we put that green matter into a woody bed, does it do the same thing as green matter anaerobically decomposing and creating glee? Thank you for all you do. Thanks for taking my question. Talk to you later. The answer is no, unless you specifically did it in a way that would make it happen. And let me explain what I mean by that. Let's say I had a pond-like structure and I wanted to seal it using a glee method. What I would probably do is take a heavy, heavily valuable organic compost, like a good compost material, And I would plant a very fast-growing green plant. It would make a shit ton of green. Um, and then I would plant, let's say, buckwheat, make a big bowl for a pond. And I would fill it with this compost and buckwheat. And I would let it grow until the buckwheat was as big as it could get. And then I would go in there and I would cut, not grind or chop, cut it whole to the ground. And if I did that... I would end up with a big, thick mat of buckwheat, not just little pieces here and there. They wouldn't be all turned in in different places. They would be this thick mat of green, and I would go over and maybe roll that down or walk it down, and then I'd put another layer of maybe a, a, a another layer of compost on it, and then I would roll that, and I would create, like you're saying, this tightly packed um, anaerobic environment, and all of the the mucilous nature of the, the green would begin to seep into this organic stuff, and it would basically be a rapid formation of a clay layer. That's what you're actually doing there. It's a rapid, uh, intentional creation of clay. And that fine particles of the compost and compost of manure, along with the green anaerobic goop that comes out of there, would lock together, and yes, I can seal a pond that way. It's actually kind of the creative way. And as long as the soil would almost do it already, this will work. If you try this in the middle of a desert in a pile of sand, even with a magical garden hose that continuously runs, it won't hold. It only can do so much, but it will do that. When you're making something like a wood core bed, and there's some green matter going in there, generally the way that happens is you cut the sod, okay, You, you, you pull it back and then either your wood goes in the ground or goes right on the surface and you build it up and you flip the sod over and the green goes against the wood. It's not anywhere near the same type of construction that you have. There's some air gaps in there. There's things that move around. There's some soil microbes are going to start feeding on it. As it begins to break down, it's, it's against the carbon core. The carbon and the nitrogen are going to begin to bind. That's going to basically create a very slow composting process. And you're not going to take your wood core bed after you've constructed it, and it's all nice, and the soil's all loose and friable, and you're ready to plant on it, and then pack it down. Right? There's a lot of settling with weight. You want to get it planted fast. You want roots in there before it has a time to settle and get fir to firm. 
right? But it's a totally different environment, so you, you will not get glee. Now, if you did this, if you thought, I know what I'll do, I'll really charge this thing up, and you grew a crap ton of something green like buckwheat, high, uh, oat grass or something like that, just a huge amount of it, and then you cut it, and in your, your trench, you filled it like four inches deep with green matter, and then stacked your heavy wood on top of that, and then put your dirt on top of it, you very well could form a glee layer. And that problem would, you know, somebody right now is thinking, ooh, that would hold water. Nah. What it'll actually end up doing is making it very difficult for the wood core to pull water up from below the glee layer. So you, you don't want to do that, but that's the kind of thing it would take to make it happen. Um, great call, great question, but if you think about this, Uh, with a double dig method of conventional garden beds flipping the sod over, it's what's been done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You have to get a large amount of green material compacted, and in that situation, you damn well will get glee. And if you get it where you want it, it's a good thing, and if you get it where you don't want it, it's a pretty bad thing. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Sean from New Mexico, and I was wondering about uh, what you would think about uh, savings bonds to silver uh Uh, conversions. Um, basically, I'm 21 years old, and um, I've got $1,500 worth of uh, savings bonds that my parents had got me when I was a little kid. Um, they are currently uh, been transferred to me, and they're mine. Um, they do have a really good interest rate, uh, at least uh, compared to um, modern, uh, well, what's going on with the savings accounts now, and even uh, uh, any other kind of bonds you'd be able to get. Um, the only downside is that their average maturity isn't going to be around 2020 to 2024. Um, considering what we uh, usually hear from the show, um, I'm not sure if we exactly have that much time and if it would even be worth it later, even if it is getting a great interest rate. Um, what I'm really wondering is uh, maybe if I could try and sell the bonds and then use that money to buy silver and just use that as a savings account. I'm um, silver's as low as it is right now. I'm just wondering what uh, you were thinking about that. Um, anyway, thank you very much. Love the show, and uh, hope you have a good day. Bye. Yes, yes. Immediately sell your sell them right now. It doesn't matter. Just sell them and then go to tspmint.com and use the money. No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't tell you that. Let me look at this. I I answered a very similar question to this in, in mail, but uh, in the email show uh, last week. But I think this one's worth maybe a little bit of a revisit here. First of all, let me. Uh, Let me give you one little piece of advice. I know that I say, you know, get your point, make your question and all, but don't leave out really important details. So there's one really important detail here um, that was left out. Does anybody got it? Because I do the Jeopardy music. Dun, 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 dun. Boom. Right? Now you got to give your answer. Your time to think over. What was the interest rate? It was really good comparatively, sort of. I, I don't know what that means. I, I don't know. I can take a stab in the dark and say you got a five percent bond or something like that. Um, about fifteen hundred bucks worth. Eh, it's not bad. It's making some money for you. You know it's making some money for you. It's probably keeping pace with base inflation right now. Uh, it doesn't have the volatility potential that silver does. Uh, silver can go way, way up, way, way down, way, way up, way, way down, up, 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 down a little bit, back up. I mean, it doesn't do that. It's 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 basically money paying interest. So it's up to you. And here is how I would make the determination. When you think to yourself, if it was just money, and if it was worth as much as it's going to be today, the day that I that was spending it, would I buy silver with it today? 
So if you have $1,500 worth of bonds today, but at maturity they'll be worth $2,000, and you had $2,000 today and it was in cash, would you buy silver with it? Based on your assessment of the silver market, based on your, your current and future goals, and based on how much silver you want to have in your life. I mean, that's the way to look at it. This is my little bit of my concern here. You sound like a young guy. This may be the only savings that you have. The main reason you might be looking at buying silver with it could be because it's the only way you can see yourself buying any silver anytime soon. <sighs> If that's the case, you probably need to keep it in something that's much more of a cash equivalent like a bond. If it's just, I want to increase my silver holdings, I have some savings here, I have some savings there, I'm saving money every month, and I'm putting money in this, and I'm doing that, and I've got my preps on my way, and I'm just thinking, hey, maybe I'd just like to change this class of asset, then go ahead and do it if that's what you want. You know, go out and buy the silver that you want and put it into the type of holding that you want it to be in, whether you want to buy it and put it in a safe deposit box, and at that amount, it's probably not worth to get a good little firebox somewhere and squirrel it away real good in your house. Uh, or you already have a place where you're holding physical silver, great. Go ahead and do it. But don't stress on this, and don't think you got to make a decision right now. Um, you, said you don't know if we have that long left. Well, it doesn't matter how long we have left. It matters, do you know you need to get out before you don't get out and are stuck holding the bag? So even if you're sitting here three or four years from now and say, you know what? Now I'm not feeling good about any of this crap. I think this this thing's really about to come to a head. Well, you'll if since you're paying attention, you'll be aware of that so long before society will. You'll have plenty of time to sell that bond tomorrow or the next day or next year. You really will. Um, and the day that that bond can't be exchanged for currency, it's over. We're there. Up until the day before that's true, you'll be able to exchange that bond for currency. Um, so don't sweat this. And if you're if you got a bond paying you eight percent right now, and it's a, a locked fixed interest bond like a savings bond would be, I'd just sit on it. If you got a bond paying you four percent right now, and you really think it's time to up your silver holdings, and this is a good source of funds, I'd seriously consider the conversion. And anything in the middle, you got to kind of make a decision for yourself. But look at the bonds as money, because that's what they are, and look at them as having the value that they will at maturity. And then understand maturity is two different things, two kinds of maturity in a bond. Most bonds will have a face value, $100 bond. Okay, So you can buy a $100 bond for a certain amount of money, and it'll be worth $100 in five years. It'll be fully mature. But it will continue to gain interest for 30 years from its date of purchase. So many of the bonds you're holding may actually be matured to face value or above, but they may be able to continue to gain interest for future years, or they may legitimately be 20- or 30-year bonds. Okay, So you might want to check into that because it may affect your decision. You might want to find out what are they really worth today, And what will they really be worth in 2020? And use that as part of your decision-making process. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Chris from Taxes. You just calling. Um, I was wondering what you think about letting kids play with toy guns. On one side of the issue, uh, when I was a kid, I had cap guns. I had a toy M16. And I would like to think that I turned out to be a relatively normal human being. But on the other side... Should I let my kids play with toy guns? I'm kind of concerned about, you know, teaching them 
uh, not to respect a weapon or, you know, letting them become, you know, uh, familiar with them and, and treating them in a, in a way that really is disrespectful to the weapon or unsafe. Um, I just wonder what you think. Thanks a lot. Part of me wants to just go seriously, but I understand. I understand. You, you see, and this is important. This is really important to understand what's going on here. We have a listener of the Survival Podcast. I guarantee you this guy's pro-Second Amendment. And even he is being whittled down by this campaign. The answer is yes, your children should play with toy guns. And if you're worried, well, they won't have respect for a weapon, that means that you believe that your child is too stupid to know the difference between a toy and the real thing. And that because they're too stupid to know that, they'll think one is just like the other. To me, there are three different types of guns in the world. There are completely harmless, inanimate object that you call legitimately a toy gun. Then there are weapons that have the potential for abuse that fire generally non-lethal projectiles. This today would be airsoft, paintball, BB pellet guns. When I was a kid, there was no airsoft and there was no paintball. We just had BB pellet guns, okay? And then there are firearms that fire a lethal potentially lethal projectile. Somebody's going to tell me that there's an air rifle that you can kill a buffalo with. I know, I know. That goes into the firearms category if you want to be technical in this area. It's an aberration. You're not going to buy one of those $1,000 air rifles for your child and send them loose with it to play with Billy unless you're dumb. Okay, so let that go. But that's what you got to look at with kids. When it comes to exposing them to weapons... There's three categories, and toys are toys. Dun, 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 dun. They're not guns. They are, but they're not. They look like guns. You can play games with them like cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians. Is that politically incorrect? I don't care. Okay, You can play versions of tag. We, we used to just play Guns when I was a kid. Some of my fondest memories running around the Florida swamps with my friends, and we all had our toy guns, and the way you would shoot somebody, even if the gun went click, is you went bang, and you said, I got you, right? And then the guy would have to stand there and count to 20, out loud. So everybody knew he was dead, and everybody could adjust to the next thing, and you had to leave. You couldn't just wait and shoot him again. We had rules. Amazing. Kids came up with this crap. I don't know that this game exists anywhere else. We came up with this all by ourselves. We just thought this was cool. We had a lot of fun. It was like hide-and-seek, but when you saw somebody, you could shoot them from a distance. And as long as you said you got them, you got them. Because we didn't have airsoft guns and paintball guns. So everybody hit every time they fired. That was the least realistic thing about this, okay? And we ran and we did things with guns that were completely unsafe to do with a real gun because we knew, dun da 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 they were toys. Okay, now... When you move into the world of airsoft and paintball and pellet rifles and things like that, different classes of these things have different capabilities and different rules of engagement, if any at all. You do not shoot, Billy, you do not shoot Johnny with a pellet gun, okay? If you guys want to wear safety equipment, learn about airsoft, be taught about airsoft, 
put on goggles and understand the rules of engagement like you don't shoot Billy in the ear two feet away with an airsoft gun. You and Billy can shoot each other with airsoft guns. Yes, you can take the game up a notch, and this is probably not something your eight-year-old should be doing. This is a higher level of responsibility, and the same rules apply for paintball, proper safety equipment, Proper rules, proper management, proper supervision until a certain age and respect are learned and taught and earned. But now we're into the world of it's a game. It's a game. It's a toy that we play with. It's a game that has greater rules of responsibility. In the world of pellet guns and BB guns, you don't shoot the mockingbird out of the tree with the BB gun, Billy, or Daddy will take it away from you and you will never see it again. The threat is thinly veiled because he'll see it again someday, but he won't see it for a while when he shoots the mockingbird out of the tree. This has a whole new level of responsibility. And again, you can't shoot Billy in the ass with it, Johnny. If you do, I will take my hand to your ass and you won't see your gun again. Do we understand each other? Yes, Daddy. And then you watch him with it. And the kid has to get to a certain age before he can step out the door with it by himself. Hey, All right? This is for shooting targets and with the right power and right equipment and right time of year and right licensing, yes, it can be used for hunting. But it is for small animals within its capability, Billy, and it is for target shooting so that you can become a better shooter. And it is a stepping stone so that one day Daddy can go out with you, Billy, and we'll shoot the twenty-two. And when I think that you're being respectful with the BB gun, and I think I feel safe with you with this, that you've heard and learned from me, okay, then I will take you to the range or the backyard and we will shoot the 22, which will be a gateway to learning how to shoot center fires and becoming a hunter one day, Billy. But first, you're going to have to demonstrate to me that you cannot shoot Johnny in the ass and not shoot the mockingbird and have control and respect over this BB gun. And if you break the neighbor's window, you're going to be grounded for summer. Won't that be great, Billy? Oh, no. Okay, then don't do it. We understand each other. Yes, Dad. See, this is how you actually teach a child to become a responsible person with firearms when they grow up. And kids do what they have an interest in, and dun -da -da -da, their interest is developed with play as young children. So children that play with toy guns with games like, as, as creative as we were, we called it playing guns, will turn into kids that want to progress and are not so stupid that they don't understand the difference between a toy, an airsoft gun, a paintball gun, a pellet gun, or a firearm. Get it? This is how it works now. What is really going on in society that we can't understand that fundamental freaking reality anymore? The left progressive movement that wants to strip the Second Amendment and get rid of gun rights is a very patient group of people. The NRA is the oldest civil rights organization in the United States of America. Did you know that? They were the first true civil rights-based organization in America. And they started a long time ago. Meaning this battle is not new. The ink wasn't dry on the Bill of Rights before the Second Amendment was being attacked, folks. 
This is yet another attack. And you go, Jack, how is it really attack to tell a five-year-old that he shouldn't have a, a little blue cops and robbers gun that shoots you know, rubber darts out of it, shooting targets on his wall and a little you know, bullseye thing, or telling him he shouldn't be running around with a, a mock-up of, a, of a, a, you know, a rifle shooting at his friend playing you know, gun tag in the woods. How is that really attacking the Second Amendment? Because we're cutting the interest before it's formed by taking away the toy. That's step one. Step two, we're creating a mentality in society that, oh, they shouldn't do that. So that even the toy gun is not something you should have. So if you grow up and toy guns aren't something you should have, well, then maybe BB guns aren't something you should have. Maybe that makes sense. You see, you start to whittle it away. And then you take even the parents that are people that would die to defend the Constitution, you get them thinking this way. And even though they grew up when dad has a gun, guns were something scary and not approachable. And pretty soon, a couple generations of this go by, and you merge that into the teacup generation, and you get a whole bunch of people that are afraid of guns, even if in their hearts they're for them, and now you can tear apart the gun rights of America. It's not crazy, folks. It's what they're doing. It's why a child gets suspended for a gun that belongs to a toy soldier that is so small, it is smaller than a quarter. It is why a child is sent home when asked to do an art project and decides to do one, and their theme is the troops, and takes an army man that is a fully welded thing. It's, a, it's an army man, like a 1960s little army man that has his gun, and glues it to the bill of a hat, and they get sent home under a zero-tolerance policy for guns. It's all the same thing. Now, the people in your family that tell you, I don't know if it's really good that Billy plays with those guns with his friends in the woods, they're not part of this plan. They're a tool of this plan. The marketing has been so successful... These people are willing accomplices that don't know they're willing accomplices. This is what every gun-loving parent in America should do today. Make sure your children have lots of toy guns. Lots of them. Encourage them to use their imaginations, to fight villains, to, to defend the innocent, to battle dragons, to be in a zombie movie, to whatever it is. And you know what? Get off the video game, Billy, and get out in the woods and play this game with your friends for real. With a toy. And when you're older, Billy, look into Airsoft. It might be fun. You don't like it? Don't do it. But look into it. Let's go knock some tin cans over, Billy. Shut the Xbox off. Let's go. You're, you're, you're wasting your time. There's, that's a pixel in there, Billy. Pick up this daisy. Let me show you how to do this for real. Uh, you missed. You see, it's not like, you don't have experience points here. There's no cheat codes, right? You gotta, you gotta actually earn this now. Let's see. Bang! Oh, look, you knocked it over. Let's step back three steps and see if you can still do it. Ah, oh, you're missing. Let me adjust that for you. Let me teach you how to do that. Yeah, I know you and Tommy were playing yesterday and you wanted guns, but this is different. This is real. See? That's why we don't point the muzzle at our feet or at daddy. This is what every responsible, gun-loving parent in the country should be doing today. All types of toys. With one thing I will tell you that I would do today. I would not have a child running around with a toy gun that could ever be confused as real. 
I would have them be, you know, obviously toys. And most toy guns today are obviously toys. The airsoft stuff, if your kids or you get into airsoft, you know that orange thing on the muzzle? Do not black that out or take it off. Do not black that out or take it off. Do not black that out or take it off. I will say it one more time. Do not black that out or take that off because those things look really real without that bright orange thing on them. So the other thing I would tell you with airsoft and paint gun, paintball stuff, make sure the place that you're going to play these games is a place where you can do it without having 17 calls to Homeland Security. But other than that, Give them toy guns, let them play. And when somebody goes, I'm not so sure that that's a good idea, ask them why. And when they say, because they might learn the guns, they say, no, they might learn? Really? That might be a good thing. And then explain it to them a way that I just explained it to you. Or if you don't think you can explain it that way, take this show, cut a piece out of it if you want to, And let them listen to it. You can edit my shows and broadcast my information anywhere as long as you don't sell it or do misleading things with it, folks. My distribution policy, part of my continuity of TSP program, is on my distribution pro uh, policy, do it. Distribute. Distribute your ass off. That's how we keep this thing going. That's how we get a voice of sense into America today. Toy guns, hell yes. And you know what, caller? I want you to do something for me this weekend. Take your kid out and buy him a new toy gun. And start the process of graduation from toy to the paintball, airsoft, BB gun world. And eventually, when you can learn responsibility, we'll even go out and shoot a real gun. And build a future sentinel that will stand for his rights. And when somebody makes some crap statement like, who shouldn't have toy guns? will defend the, 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 the concept as vigorously long after you and I are gone as we do today. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Ian in Arizona, and I have a permaculture question for you. I'm wondering if, in particularly arid climates, swales are really a secondary thing to mulching. Uh, the reason that I'm asking is uh, the I live in the high desert area. We get less than an inch of rain per month, generally. And it's extremely rare to see any groundwater outside of um, established drainage channels. So what I'm wondering is if swales would really do anything in a situation like that. Obviously, I understand uh, berming or, or ponding or swaling over drainage areas to collect water. But if there's not any flowing groundwater in other spaces, are swales going to do anything that I maybe I'm not thinking of? Or would it really be a better idea to mulch heavily and use that to prevent the water from evaporating after it hits the ground? Our soil is fairly sandy and water tends to, to drain in fairly well. So my experience with mulch has been extremely good. Um, my experience with a test swale that I built has been pretty iffy. So uh, any thoughts you have on this, I'd be interested in hearing. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Well, the answer is mulch is very important where you are, but swales are even more important. And this is why. You say, well, you only get less than an inch of rain a month. But what you probably do is you get very, very heavy rains once or twice a year. You probably get most of your rain one or two uh, major events. Um, Jeff Lawton, when I had him on the air one time, we talked about desert permaculture, said that the th interesting thing about a desert is what you're designing for is a flood. 
they don't come often, but when they do, you have to make the most use of them. So a swale is not something you put in the middle of a creek or something. You, you, and, and there's, see, and this is the thing. People look and go, well, there's a wash there, there's a wash there, and there's a wash there. And as though that means that there's no water anywhere else. And of, of course there is. And, and we put those swales on contour, and there's contour even when you don't think there is. The point is that when that water event comes, or even a moderate event comes, that the water that gets on the ground and hits that swale stays instead of goes away. So it's about harvesting water. Now, in the middle of an environment like this, you're probably not going to you know, connect 17 dams with swales across 100 acres the way you've seen Jeff do in some of his videos. But instead of ponds, what you're doing is you're doing all swaling, with, with in, in most instances, no ponds at all. Now, in those washes, we can do some interesting silt dams, um, we could go in there and, and do some pretty cool things. Like, let's say we have a lot of rock around, especially rock that's, you know, like baseball, softball-sized stuff. We could uh, get some, some gabions, which are just basically metal cages, and fill them with rocks and basically dam up the wash with the gabion. And what will happen is you'd be surprised at how fast you'll end up with basically a big pile of silt behind that gabion that will seep water out of that gabion when it hasn't rained for a very long time. You can grow a lot of stuff in there. There's there's more than one ways to skin that desert cat when it comes to this. But what I really invite you to do to understand swelling in desert environments is go today to YouTube and watch Greening the Desert, the original, and then watch the follow-up to Greening the Desert, and you'll see exactly how swells were used in the desert. Uh, so that's that's kind of my easy answer there. I'm putting that to the information's out there. I'll put a link to Greening the Desert in today's show notes. For those who have never seen it, please watch it and know this. When I saw that, and that was over five years ago, I realized what permaculture could do. That turned the switch for me. So go have a look for yourself and know that a lot of people that came to the movement came from that one video, and you'll understand exactly why I'm saying, if anything, they're more important in your environment. Hey, Jack, I had a couple questions for you about growing sweet potatoes. I've got some that I've started in mason jars, and everyone says to break the slip off when it's about two to three inches long. Are they talking about the sprout that comes off the top, or are they talking about the roots that come out of the bottom of the tuber that are growing into your jar? If you're just taking the sprout off of the top, do you want to cut that out with a knife or just break it off as sufficient? Also, I suppose you just want to get these things out of the ground before they freeze, but can you start them too early to where they get woody or they start to rot or anything like that? I've been looking for some like in a nursery or somewhere that sells, you know, vegetable-type plants in the spring. I haven't found any. I didn't know if there was a certain time that you need to have these things in the ground if you need to start them you know, in the indoors like a year before. Thanks for all your help. Honestly, sweet potato is probably one of the most underrated survival foods in the world. They're nutritious, they're delicious, they're easy to grow. They do better in the south than the north, but there's almost nowhere in the lower 48 that you can't grow them, and in the tropics you can grow them as a freaking perennial. Um, and they are one of the easiest things in the world to propagate. So let's talk about timing first. They are a warm weather plant. A frost will kill them dead in a doornail. Dead. I mean, so dead. So generally you want to plant your sweet potato slips into the ground about three to four weeks after the last frost. So if your last frost date 
uh, was May 15th, because you're in a pretty northern climate. You're looking at June 15th, which is a pretty short growing season for sweet potatoes. You might cheat it by a couple weeks, but you want to get a potato then that is well, the variety that's well suited for a shorter season, and you can look that up and see. If you're in the south, you get plenty of time, plenty of time for your sweet potatoes. So you also then want to say, well, if I want to plant, let's say, on June 1st, then I want to start my slips around May 1st, around four to five weeks before they're going to go out to give me enough time to get everything well-rooted and done. The problem with your question is you you only got halfway to the part before they go in the ground. So you put your potato in a mason jar. Roots start coming out at the bottom of the potato. What do you do with those? Nothing. That's just the potato doing what it would do if you shove the whole potato in the ground. What you're trying to do is make multiple plants out of one potato. That's the whole purpose of a slip. You could throw a sweet potato in the ground. It'll work. Okay. It'll happen. Uh, sweet potato vine will root like crazy. If you have a long sweet potato vine and you dig a hole after that vine's got some length on it and shove the vine under the ground and then bury it so it's going in from one side and out from the other, it'll root. And it'll even set more tubers in a long-growing climate. So you can even multiply it once it's in the garden that way. The key is the rooting. right? And if you take a sweet potato vine with no roots and just stick it in the dirt, um, if it's really a perfect environment and there's enough moisture all the time and it's never stressed much during its formative phase, it may very well root for you, but that's not the way to do it. So what you do is you have your little sprouts coming up off of your potato. Cut them with a knife or a pair of scissors and cut them, you know, not right off at the potato, actually. Some people, they call them a slip because what some people will do is they'll just take their kind of their finger and push the vine right off of the potato. I actually like to leave that vine. I'll tell you why in a second. Okay. And then you take the, the piece of the vine you've cut. Hopefully it's got a few leaves on it by this point. You want something that's about four inches long. And you take it and you get another jar of water and you stick the vine into it like you would cut flowers. The vine will then begin to root. And when it's well rooted, that's the part you put in the garden. Now why do I like to cut versus slip the, the sprout off of the potato. Because if you got a nice big healthy sprout coming off of that potato and you cut the vine, do you know what usually happens? It keeps growing and you can get another one a couple weeks later. So you can get more sweet potatoes and with a, and now if you're in the north, it doesn't really matter. You want to get them done and get them out there. Down here, I can have a bed that was doing the last bit of a spring planting And then I can go ahead and pull that out, and I can get another crop in a second crop if I really want to. That said, one or two sweet potatoes is going to make you two dozen-ish slips. And if you have a good climate for and a good environment for sweet potatoes, you'll grow a crap ton of sweet potato with that. So there's very few things as self-sufficiency-orientated as a sweet potato. And it has a much lower glycemic index than a white potato. So for all of us on the, potato, the, the paleo uh, train, if we're going to eat a potato or a root vegetable, sweet potato is much more preferable to us than a white potato, especially in smaller quantities and not eating as frequently. And try this with a good sweet potato. Um, take your sweet potato and peel it. And then get a cheese grater and grate it over a salad and try it raw on a salad. That'll be really good. Now, my sweet potato of choice is these mizuki or whatever, how you pronounce them, Japanese purple sweet potatoes. And when you cut them open, they're not orange. They're yellow. And with nothing on them, they pretty much taste like a regular buttered potato, but they still have the profile glycemically 
as a sweet potato, and I think they're amazing. But when you want something that you can never have to buy seed for once you have it established, that you can produce over and over and over and over again, that stores well after harvest, that'll feed the hell out of you. Oh, and by the way, the vine part, it can handle clipping, plenty of clipping, and sweet potato greens, unlike white potato greens, are edible and taste good both in a salad as a green, and they also taste pretty dadgone good chopped up with other greens and things and done like a stir-fry. So now I've got a plant that I can eat the green and the tuber that I can propagate over and over again. About the only plant that's easier to propagate with a greater yield for less work that I can think of is the Jerusalem artichoke. I mean, you get a few of them established and you're, you're good for the rest of your life. Um, and, and that's, you know, probably why they should be in every permaculture garden and every survival garden should include sweet potato and Jerusalem artichoke, unless you live in a climate that's just too far north. But I think you'll find, you know, even Pennsylvania, you know, you can grow plenty of sweet potatoes. Just pick the right variety for your area. As far as the Japanese purples that I'm in love with, thanks to a listener that sent me some that I'm growing slips from right now, uh, a year later. Um, I don't know how that would perform in a, in a you know, like a zone six. I don't know if it would work there. I don't know if the season's long enough, because I pretty much let them go till right before frost. And at that point, I go ahead and start pulling them out. And, uh, man, it's just cool because all you see is this vine running everywhere. And it's doing the ground cover thing. And you have all kinds of things planted in with it. And then you start pulling, and you're just these, they're just everywhere. And it's, it's a great feeling of security to know that those things are available. They'll store well without refrigeration. And uh, that they'll produce so reliably. They'll feed you so well. And they're so daggone easy to propagate. Everybody out there, there's still time this year. Maybe you should you know, get yourself an organic sweet potato. Uh, if you can't get a seed sweet potato from somebody, as long as it's organic, you know, it's not sprayed with any kind of chemical retardant. And uh, give it a shot. Even if you don't get a yield, if it's too late uh, for you this year, if you had to really get on it earlier, give it a try anyway just to learn from the experience. And again, even if you don't get a great root yield, try some sweet potato greens. You might be surprised at how much you like them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living